the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside. Good evening and welcome to the Science Insight, where we bring you the latest news and stories and events happening in the world of science and technology. I am Linda Kuhletimakwe. And I am Nondumisa Lehutzel. And in this week, we still continue with the water remediation and management projects that are taking place at various institutions. By now, we all know that South Africa is a water-stressed country. And with the advent of climate change, we're noticing varying effects caused by global warming across the country where two weeks ago the city of Cape Town experienced floods after having experienced an intense drought. Yes, talk about dramatic, a dramatic turn of events. According to scientists, these drastic weather patterns are here to stay. The western region of South Africa has been projected to become hotter and drier, while the east will become hotter and possibly wetter. But this will not spare it from the impact of increasing drought stress, as according to a damning report which was released by Witz climatology professor Francois Engelbrecht. With that being said, in this week's show, we are tackling ways in which waste matter, or rather waste water, can be treated, remediated and managed. So this week we are looking at anaerobic digestion, which is a series of biological processes in which microorganisms break down biodegradable material in the absence of oxygen. Um, So this process has multiple layers of benefits, such as managing wastewater efficiently while producing biogases from the biological chemical reactions in the wastewater. Mm, That sounds very interesting and I can't wait to hear all about that. (laughs) But thereafter, we will get into an interview with a limnologist from the University of the Free State who is working jointly with the CSIR to implement an algae based wastewater treatment solution at the Motitema Wastewater Treatment Works in the Sekune, Sekukune District Municipality in Limpopo. On tonight's on science, we are looking at an interesting study which suggests people who are sleep deprived are more likely to opt for foods and diets with a high calorie count. Yeah, I can't, I can't wait for that study to come up (laughs) because I have a bit of a sweet tooth myself, Mm -hmm. Lindo. Anyway, we still have all of that later on the show for you. So what is actually happening in the news? This week's Science Headline. And the news making headlines this week, there's a possibility of our modern day gorillas having higher IQs than ancient humans. And South Africa celebrated its innovative diabetes care program on World Diabetes Day. Good evening, I am Linda Gusletimakwe. The gorilla Coco, who was born at the San Francisco Zoo and lived in California, was taught to communicate with her teacher, Francine Patterson, and the chimpanzee Washu, born in West Africa in 1965, was taught to use sign language and learned about 350 signs. With that information, it is sufficient to confirm that the great apes, including humans, gorillas, chimpanzees, bonobos, and orangutans, are very intelligent. The question does, however, stand about how the intelligence of living great apes, such as Coco the gorilla, compare with our three million year old relatives, such as Lucy the Australopithecine. Lucy, a 40% complete female specimen of the hominin species, Australopithecus afarensis, discovered in 1974, is generally considered to have been smarter because of the size of her brain, indicated by the fossil brain cases of Australopithecus species, which is larger than orangutans and chimpanzees, and is comparable to gorillas despite the great difference in body mass. 
However, new research measures the rate of blood flow to cognitive part of the brain based on the size of the holes in the skull that allow passage for supply arteries. This technique was calibrated in humans and other mammals and then applied to 96 great ape skulls and 11 Australopithecus fossil skulls. The study shows that the cerebral blood flow rate in our Australopithecine human ancestors was well below the, of that non-living great apes. According to a researcher called Dr. Snelling, fossil specimens were measured from museums and academic institutions in the US, Australia and South Africa. For Dr. Snelling, a brain with a higher metabolic rate suggests a higher level of cognition and intelligence because being smart is energetically costly. He mentioned that the brain blood flow rate and hence brain metabolic rate and perhaps cognition is much higher in living grape apes compared to that was of the Australopithecus. The reason this is surprising is because they had previously assumed, because on brain size alone, that our three million year old ancestors were at least as cognitively advanced in the living great apes, but these results cast serious doubt on the assumption. It has generally been assumed that intelligence is directly related to the size of the brain. At first, brain size seems reasonable because it is a measure of the number of brain cells called neurons. However, on second thought, cognition relies not only on the number of neurons, but also on the number of connections between them, called synapses. These connections govern the flow of information within the brain and greater synaptic activity results in greater information processing. The human evolution lineage separated from those of other great apes about 6 to 10 million years ago and brain size tended to increase within all those lineages. It appears that brain size and blood flow rate started out low but increased more quickly in the human lineage than in other, other great apes. Based on the results, it is estimated that blood flow to cococerebral hemispheres was about twice that of Lucy's despite having similarly sized brains. It thus changes our perspective on who we think we are as species and how we evolved our intelligence. The findings of the study modify scientists' understanding of the evolution of human cognition and intelligence. And on to our final story. Diabetes, or what is known as diabetes mellitus, exists in two distinct forms. Type 1, which usually occurs in younger adults who require insulin injections from the time of diagnosis. And type 2, which is usually associated with lifestyle. In South Africa, diabetes is a part of a, a particular concern. South Africa has the highest prevalence of overweight or obese citizens in sub-Saharan Africa. And according to Statistics Essay, it is the leading cause of death. The prevalence of type 2 diabetes has variations on age and ethnic group as it ranges from 7% to 25% of the population in the communities. The majority of people living with diabetes receive treatment in the public sector primary care environment. In the early disease, treatment consists of lifestyle modifications and oral medication, or medication rather, is a straightforward and done according to acceptable guidelines and algorithms. However, over time, management becomes more complex and complications such as foot ulcers and amputations may occur. This complexity demands care that is often not available or suboptimal, most often due to resource constraints such as medical personnel and equipment. In response to these challenges in diabetes management in the primary care sector, which affect thousands of South Africans, the Department of Internal Medicine at the University of Pretoria is leading a multidisciplinary team of physicians and public health experts. The team interacting with the clinics consists of a project leader, a nurse coordinator and other clinical associates.
The Twine Insulin Project, known as TIP, is a translational research program funded over five years by the Lilly Global Health Initiative. This project aims to improve early detection and treatment of diabetes at primary care in the Twani district, which includes approximately 68 health facilities. The goal is to design, implement and evaluate a nurse-led, community worker-assisted and patient-centered innovative model of care that will facilitate insulin use in primary care. Nationally, many clinics do not have doctors available on site and the TIP study will evaluate the use of a mobile app to facilitate communication between healthcare workers with a designated primary care physician. This novel approach has significant operational as well as economic benefits in the delivery of care. In 2020, the TIP study will expand in a bold aim, which is to initiate at least 400 people on insulin all around the Tswane district and improve their quality of life as they bravely live flourishing lives despite having diabetes. TIP is an embodiment of the ethos of University of Pretoria as a passionate and dedicated UP staff members implement innovative groundbreaking research and this is essentially the potential to positively impact the lives of South Africans living with diabetes. Recapping your stories for the week, there's a possibility of our modern day gorillas having higher IQs than ancient humans and South Africa celebrated its innovative diabetes care on World Diabetes Day. This week's Science Headline. South Africa only treats about 50% of its waste water, while similarly, arid countries such as Israel treat almost 90%. While the Department of Water and Sanitation's War on Leaks campaign, which by the way has not been fully implemented, would have resulted in millions of litres of water wasted on a daily basis. Now around 50 to 80% of wastewater from households is grey water and increasing the amount of wastewater treated would significantly boost water supply in the country. Hence desalination plants around the coastal areas could play a pivotal role in areas such as Cape Town and Durban. But it is part of a short-term solution with high cost implications. And with that being said, the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research is looking into a study dealing with human waste through a municipal beneficiation project aiming to harness energy through biogas produced by human and bio-waste. In short, the process is called anaerobic digestion and it has multiple benefits for not only municipalities but the environment and the way in which we all look at waste. Now our producer Bridget Lipere spoke to Kutazo Muzanani, who's leading this research at the CSIR, and in the following story, she further investigates the practicalities of this research and its impact in changing the narrative of effectively managing wastewater. South Africa's sanitation and wastewater treatment systems are under immense strain and accessing safe, dignified sanitation facilities has been a long-standing problem for many South Africans. Local government is constitutionally tasked with the responsibility of providing services related to domestic wastewater and sewage disposal. Bearing this in mind, PhD student Kutazo Muzanani in the Hydraulic Infrastructure of Water and Wastewater Management Unit at the University of the Witwatersrand and an employee of the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research under the Smart Places Department has been working on the beneficiation of municipal sludge in Gauteng. 
In her study, she is looking at a multi-pronged solution which will address the powering up of the water purification systems through non-energy recovery processes such as the anaerobic gasification processes. The process itself is the famous process, anaerobic digestion, that we are using, specifically for municipal waste sludge. In anaerobic digestion process, you take the bio-waste material to produce biogas, which biogas contain methane, and the methane can be easily projected into electricity. What happens in anaerobic digestion, you start with the material that contain a lot of organic matter, which in this stage is sludge, or your your organic waste, food waste and all those things. You start with that and then we conduct an anaerobic digestion. It's a series of steps where it moves from your sludge and then it also changes phase and then you end up having a, a gas. And biogas contain a lot of methane and as you know methane is a flammable gas. So if it's a flammable, it's contain energy and it can be produced to energy. That's one. Also from anaerobic digestion when you're using sludge, you come up with like it's a first change you have your gas you have your liquid and your solids at the bottom so that liquid it's basically water as you know but it's not as clean as it's supposed to be but it's just water as it is that water can be treated further and still be used for industrial use or being chlorinated further and be used as a potable water and then the solid part the solid part is the one which you can be able to use as fertilizer you can synthesize it further or add some modification material so that it can be suitable for fertilizer so like for your plants to use and it it makes green plants like beautiful green plants because at the end it's feces most of it that's why so that's our anaerobic digestion work according to the department of water sanitation's green drop report south africa has around 824 wastewater treatment systems across 152 municipalities these municipalities jointly have the capacity to receive about 6.5 billion liters of wastewater a day of the 824 wastewater treatment works only 248 were assessed in 2013 to be in a critical condition and in serious need of regulatory action a further 161 were in a poor condition and warranted urgent attention we were working with other clients in around city of Swane and also in job as well in also in airport i have to mention this they have anaerobic digester they are not using it to its full functionality so their main aim was just to to get rid of the waste waste management make sure that the sludge is safe for disposal so it means that should the waste that is being produced is safe for disposal their job is done so we went to them and approached them and said you know what this sludge that you're producing do you know that you can be able to power your scrubber that is consuming a lot do you know that you can be able to to power that pump that consuming a lot of energy so that's the approach that we are going with you can be able to produce energy from this waste and power your plant and save cost at the same time and you can be able to recover most of the water that was otherwise going to the environment because one way that they are using it they take that sludge pump it on the large dry bed it's coming out as moist and then they're putting it on the dry bed and then the water evaporates and then that's when they dispose it so imagine if so imagine if they take that sludge after anaerobic digestion take the water out recycle it and take it back instead of evaporating it it's a wastewater treatment plant so they treat 
water so that it can be safe for use. So it comes in as it is, they filtrate it, sludge comes out, and then that's when they implement the sludge management process. So our angle was that, why don't you take this water, take it back to the treatment plant, do whatever filtration, chlorination, same process that they do, take it back and treat it further and see as to whether it cannot be portable. But then research has been done, you just need to remove the nitrates and all those things and then it can be safe. Kutato adds that though the process may seem exciting and sensible, there is very limited knowledge around this process and very little interest in this field as it is time-consuming very expensive carrying out the research and there have not been any reports of its success as yet. It's not that interesting because it's complex, it tends to fail so much. So what we do here at the CSIR, we research almost every day about this. How can we make it better? Because it, it is amazing and we have a lot of it. If we can be able to solve that problem and make sure that zero waste is being produced, then it's a win. So the problem is optimization. What kind of conditions do you have to put your process in what can you add like as I was doing a presentation I mentioned a few core substrate that you can add to enhance that biogas production so what can we add we research about it we research okay if we add for example like a dairy waste how much are we gonna get from it and if we are adding that isn't it gonna add more toxic to the sludge so this is what we're trying to find out the water itself that is being produced is it still gonna be easily recovered when we add extra core substrate in it the um, fertilizers as well can we still use it as much as we wanted to so that's what we're researching on optimizing the process as well so the current implementation that we focus on is the nearby municipal wastewater treatment plants because the energy that is being produced is not enough to power the whole community or something like that it can only be enough to power the equipment that is within the wastewater treatment plant for example your your gas scrubber or your heating equipment or your pumping equipment so we can be able to use that energy just enough to pump so that they can be less dependent on the ESCOM electricity sort of like operate off-grid in a way. Another interesting dynamic about managing wastewater is the quality of fertilizers which can be a good byproduct of anaerobic digestion process. We visited this other wastewater treatment plant and then there were fertilizers there and they were donating it to the nearby farmer and it was giving good good results like green plants everywhere but then the problem was that that fertilizer were not being SAB as approved so we also wanted to look in ways of how can we make this the solid material that is produced from anaerobic digestion to be SAB approved and also be used by farmers as well and that also goes with who's interested so should the farmer come to us and say we're interested in the digested slide we want to use it for for farming purposes then that's the angle we're going to go with because we are at the end of the day we work on client-based interest as well however not all fertilizers are equal as with any fertilizer it needs to be evaluated for safety as nitrous oxide, a potent greenhouse gas, which in 2010 was described as America's disaster, which could be linked to environmental and health risks. For now, the sludge in South Africa is being disposed of at landfills.
There is the sludge disposal guideline. I don't know which volume is it at the moment. So they have to follow that guideline on a way on how to dispose it. But there's a whole guideline on how they do it, and it differs with the municipality on how they want to deal with it. Like I said, we were visited one of the plant, and they mentioned to us that the farmer nearby, they donated the digested sludge, and they, it was working fine until somebody came and said it's not SABS approved, so they can't continue using it anymore. It goes also with time, like what is it that they're doing at that time? We are focused on this dense populated area because they produce the sludge in megaliters. That's why. So we know when we're recovering water, they're going to recover massive of it. So it's not going to be costly for them to to put a pipeline to retain that water if it's available in higher volumes. In 2010, South Africa was estimated to have emitted over 400 million metric tons of greenhouse gases, with the energy sector contributing up to 84% of overall emissions. For a developing country, South Africa is the world's 14th largest emitter of greenhouse gases. Its carbon dioxide emissions are principally due to a heavy reliance on coal. However, a recently released draft electricity plan proposes a significant shift away from the fuel towards gas and renewables by 2050. While anaerobic gasification projects such as the one by the CSIR will help with problems relating to flammable greenhouse gases in a way they know best. That's why our other angle is waste management in a way to reduce pollution. The process that I explained to you where they, they take the sludge and dry it on the solar drying but what's happening there, the methane and the carbon dioxide, which are major greenhouse gases, are being released into the environment and depleting our ozone. So it's a very important point that you mentioned there. So should this get implemented, it means that we are solving another climate change issue as well. Well-mixed digesters react quickly to biosolids. Digester gas production typically increases rapidly and the surge is gone in about 30 minutes. Vigorous, well-mixed digesters also tend to produce more digester gases. It's a microbiological and also chemical process. It's like a conversion. You start with a material that like organic material. The stuff in it is basically your, your waste material. As time goes on, that's why it takes longer. It takes about 31 days for the anaerobic digestion to complete. You put your stuff, you just make sure that no oxygen is coming in. I don't know which process I can say which is simple. Like your, your amas, look at the amas, how it works. It comes thick. It comes as thick as it is, but with time, after you put it such a long time, you will see that it starts to have a layer of water and a layer of solid. So imagine if you've closed that process in, no oxygen is coming in, and then you just have maybe a pipe, you know, that goes where the gas is being collected. So that gas, you'll never know what gas is it. So that gas that is being produced, it's methane. So should you capture it in the process, that gas can be converted into energy. That water that sort of like separates, you can also keep it like, our process has like layers of pipe in it where we open the layer of, like after sometimes we know, hurry, uh, you can see the, here is the level of water, here is the level of digested. So you open this tap to remove all the water and then the remaining part, it goes on the side. 
The success of the quality of the gas depends on the feed of the sludge. She compared the digester to the human body, adding that whatever you fed the digester would produce the byproduct of its feed. So the more flammable gases the feed contains, the more quality gases the digester would produce. They do that when they're digging groundwater, mostly in domestics, if they want to find where, where there's water. They do that in this process. It's very complex. Anaerobic digestion is a series of steps that is happening, and that's scientific step. You need knowledge. <laughs> I'm afraid you need knowledge to, to be able to manipulate that process. Always there was an indigenous way where we can optimize the research. This process has been applied for, I don't know, for mm. centuries. And the pit toilet one, the story that I was telling you about, they, they actually dug up a hole on the pit toilet, and then they were able to produce biogas from that. Not like from the pit, pit toilet. Community people, they just find this knowledge somewhere and they were able to utilize it. But then the other thing you need to remember, you need to have incoming all the time. So the pit toilet, when it dries and runs out, what happens? Because that thing it takes, doesn't it take years to get filled? Then it doesn't produce enough to just go on forever. The nicer thing about it can be implemented on almost every organic material you can think of. Like if you go to the farm, there's animal manure everywhere. Yeah, you can use animal manure, you can use your food waste as well. You can use it. Should the food get rotten, you can just hoe in there and put it in there. And then as long as you make sure that your process is contained and you can be able to capture the gas. Though the project is in its infancy stages, Kutazo is adamant that this project can work if all stakeholders worked collaboratively in making this age-old innovation a novel way of dealing with municipal waste. The current findings that we have, just the current findings that we have, I would really like to see it being implemented on more wastewater treatment plant and then maybe if they can give us uh, a result on that cost reduction and all those things this is just the angle that i would like to see at the moment and then later stage is when it's being implemented everywhere else and then it's more optimized at the process because you know sometimes it's not only the research only there's legal issues also involved and they tend to make the project fail because of the legal issues. That was it and join us after the break as we go into tonight's Unscience where we learn about how unhealthy food choices are made by the lack of sufficient sleep. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to The Science Inside, bringing you science around major news events. Welcome back. You are still with the Science Inside on 88.1. It is time for Unscience. And we get up close with the strangest side of science research. Sometimes the science, the research is quirky and at times it is just ridiculous. So let's get into it. Unusual. Unlikely. Unscience. with cavities and when I think about it I realize that I've always had a bit of an indulgent habit and sweet eating since primary I mean it was so serious to the point that my mother had to decrease my spending money but Lindo as kids that's where every possible cent would go it had to be invested in junk that's the thing we were young and didn't know any better but the sweet consumption should stop at some point right 
But the issue is, it hasn't for me. Okay, since we're being so honest and open and confessional right now, I confess that I also haven't stopped the tradition since. But could it possibly mean anything other than just having a sweet tooth? Well, according to scientists, yes. I could be sleep deprived and I've probably been sleep deprived all these years. A new study shows that sleep deprivation can affect the endocannabinoid system, leading to people choosing fattier, higher calorie foods. I have... I have to admit, I have most certainly heard about the truth of the diet industry, that getting too little sleep can make fatty, sweet foods more tempting. But why is that really so? Now, researchers think they know why. Sleep loss influences the same smell processing neural pathway that smoking marijuana does, says Christian Benedict, a neuroscientist in Sweden. Sure, and what else does his research say, Lindo? Well, that sleep deprivation has long been known to make people crave higher um, calorie foods. I did, however, get the reasoning of the process from the research by Thorsten Cott, a neurologist at the Northwestern University Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago. He took inspiration from studies, right, linking sleep deprivation in humans to an increase in certain molecules um, in our system, a complex network of neurotransmitters and receptors that, amongst other things is affected by marijuana oh so like marijuana does in inducing what people call the munchies an intense craving for food so does eating sweets exactly even studies in mice have shown that this system influences how the brain processes smells and smell is a powerful driver of appetite right as illustrated by any gas station or cinnamon um, roll shop previously though no one had established clear links between sleep um, the system, smell, and appetite in humans. Not much was tested in humans, but he did. Top of form. More like bottom of the <laughs> form. Hmm. What was the process he went through to link all of this? Well, it's very interesting. To do so, he and his um, team asked 25 healthy volunteers to sleep for either 4 hours or 8 hours per night. Four weeks later, the volunteers repeated the experiment. But those who slept for 4 hours during the first round slept for 8 hours and vice versa. The following evening, the volunteers provided blood samples. Sleep-deprived volunteers, as expected, had higher levels of uh, the glycerol, which is 2, a molecule that uh, likely acts um, as a receptor. The sleep-deprived group didn't report feeling hungrier than their well-rested fellows. And when they were given a, a buffet of food, both groups consumed the same average amount of calories. However, people in the sleep-deprived group consistently choose foods that packed more energy per gram. You know, for example, glazed donuts instead of uh, blueberry muffins. Whoa, that sounds like a mouthful. <laughs> Pun intended. <laughs> um, and to test whether sleep was affecting the odor processing parts of the brain, the researchers also took the pre-buffet MRI scans. While in the scanner, study participants smelled a variety of food and non-food odors, including pot roast, cinnamon rolls, garlic, and fir trees. The researchers examined scans of the piriform cortex, um, a pear-shaped region responsible for interpreting smells in the brain. So it could not have been that simple though, I hear you. But what did, what did the researchers find? So they actually found that uh, sleep-deprived participants' piriform cortices showed increased activity in response to food-related smells, but not in a way that directly correlated with their changes in appetite. For example, 
two volunteers with the same increase in odor and coding might have chosen foods with different amounts of fat and calories at the buffet. So at some point, the team members had to take a different tack. So the cause and effect in the two brain regions are unclear? Yes. But the work solidifies the connection between mm-hmm. sleep deprivation and sensory processes. You know, knowing more about how external factors can affect small processing and appetite could lead to new approaches to treating things like obesity and eating disorders. That's what he actually says. Oh, okay. I know. I hear you now, Lindo. But as for you, you need to fix your sleeping patterns, girl. Definitely. Definitely. I can't possibly lose my teeth due to cavities and gain unnecessary kilos for this. It's a new week. Um, things are about to change. Good. <laughs> That's that was unusual, unlikely, and science. And in our final story, we go into an interview with a limnologist, and he is going to talk to us about cleaning wastewater with algae-based programs. Find out all about this research after the break. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. Wastewater treatment in South Africa faces significant challenges, mainly due to aging infrastructure, insufficient technical skills and limited financial resources. Inefficiently treated wastewater released in rivers and water reserves poses a risk to the environment and in human health in downstream communities. Now, the CSIR has successfully implemented an algae-based wastewater treatment solution at the Motetema Wastewater Treatment Works in the Sekukune District Municipality in Libobo to facilitate the removal of nutrients and pathogens at wastewater treatment plants. Let us play a clip from the CSIR dealing with what the project is all about. Here at Montetema Wastewater Treatment Works, one of the issues that we're dealing with here is pollution of our surface water resources. Nationally, it's a big problem in terms of treatment of wastewater, and in this particular example, the CSR is looking at implementing some of the technologies to make sure that we have sustainable water resource use. Montetema Wastewater Treatment Works is one of the examples in the country where the infrastructure was established about 20 or 30 years ago, and it's really just no longer suitable to treat the volumes of waste that we're getting nowadays. So our intervention here is to look at technologies that can more efficiently treat the waste, in other words, using the same infrastructure, actually treating more waste. So we're looking at actually extending the capability of the country's infrastructure in this way. Motetema Wastewater Treatment Works really works with the sequential pond system. There's six sequential ponds here, and the uh, ponds two to five is where algae is actually used to treat the water, really consuming uh, the nutrients that's coming in with the effluent. And then the final pond is where the water is what we call being polished, so being prepared for final release into the river system. And really we're trying to treat the water that there isn't um, excess nutrients in the water and also not microbial pollution which can have detrimental effects for people's health downstream. Wastewater treatment is not really a lucrative business. We're hoping to use something like algae, which is usually considered a pest, an impact in a natural resource, to treat wastewater. So at Motitema we have two systems of six ponds with which we treat wastewater in a gravitational flow method. That means when the the effluent comes into the first uh, pond and then it just flows through gravitation through to the other ones. And then pond four and five is where we hope to introduce our algae-based system where they will thrive on the nutrients. And what thrives on algae? Fish or some form of aquaculture, which we're hoping to introduce to the sixth pond, which will prevent this algae from entering our natural resources. 
I'm from the University of Napopa and we've been asked to assess what fish species we can put into the sixth pond, which is the polishing pond, which is basically fish that can consume the algae. So in theory, basically the algae which absorbs, picks up the nutrients, is then converted into fish biomass uh, when the fish ingest the algae. We're basically going to try and assess fish work in standard local conditions because of the, the situation or the system here is an artificial system, not a natural system. We then have to find fish that are robust enough to can tolerate the conditions or the nutrients within the system. That's why CSR assessment or the water conditions and um, parameters are crucial in, in judging what fish that we can introduce into the system. So in essence, what we're trying to do is once we can successfully rear fish in this condition, we can then involve the various stakeholders to then just decide what they want to do with the fish, i.e. be it aquaculture, or be it for consumption, or be it for just recreational fishing. Because what's really crucial for the successful rearing of fish is the water quality. And if ammonia levels, for instance, are too high, it becomes toxic to the fish and they in turn will die. The privilege for us as DM is our first district municipality to start this project for the community. I think it will also decrease the poverty from our communities. Sure, and speaking to us on this project, we chat to the head of department of the Center for Environmental Management within the Faculty of Natural and Agricultural Sciences at the University of the Free State, Prof. Paul Oberhoster. Good evening, Paul, and welcome to the Science Inside. Good evening and good evening to all the listeners. Great. It's a privilege to be on the program. It is a privilege to have you. So Paul, tell us in essence what the study is about and how the strategy was developed. Well, we've got uh, different types of treatment. We're looking here at passive treatment. And when you're talking about passive treatment, you're talking about no electricity. So you're using gravity. Uh, to get uh, your algae into the system. Then you've got two types of uh, passive treatments. You've got phytoremediation and phyto. Now, phytoremediation is when you use uh, microalgae or microalgae. Microalgae is what you usually uh, look under a microscope and microalgae is what you can see with the eye. Your phytoremediation is when you use plants, specific aquatic plants, to treat the system. In the case of uh, metatema, we were looking at microalgae, small algae, mm -hmm. that can e easily be suspended into the water column and then absorb uh, all the nutrients in the system, lift the pH to a level above uh, 9 so that you kill all your coli, your microbial coli, and your pathogens. Using only natural processes in the system, no chemicals at all. So this is really built for uh, rural areas, the algae itself is a consortium of algae that don't compete against each other and that's very robust and it can survive conditions uh, between the ranges of 37 degrees and then uh, just uh, above 4 degrees in the water column itself. Sure. And the whole idea here is to uh, cut costs mm. to minimum. You don't need you need existing infrastructure, you don't need the engineer to run the system, uh, and that costs a lot of cost. Mm, I can imagine. And what mechanisms are in place to um, ensure the economical aspect of this um, study? Well, what we have is we, we use two chlorella species. We have mm -hmm. tested them in uh, a, a lot of consortium species. It's not... Uh, genetically modified species, so mm -hmm. it is natural species. 
that we've tested in the lab and then developed a consortium of these uh, uh, algae species that has been patented in South Africa for the specific use of it. We tested it in Motetemba, but we also got uh, another plant in Mossel Bay to mm-hmm. look at uh, uh, coastal air, uh, conditions, climate conditions for the survival of the algae that is near Brandbach. Uh, it's about 30 kilometers from Mossel Bay. The difference of the two plants is in the case of Motetemba, we were looking at aquaculture for the communities. Mm-hmm. And it's also by, uh, we're looking here with the algae biomass that we are harvesting, we're looking at uh, generating biofuel for the small community there to run, for example, the street lights at night for uh, security and stuff like that. But uh, this is not the end of the algae. We also... Uh, the buy-in of the African Developing Bank uh, secured us money to roll the, this algae uh, projects out to uh, other countries and southern countries in Africa. And mm-hmm. uh, we will be now in the new year start rolling it out to uh, Chancellor's College in Malawi uh, that will run a plant for the university there uh, treating the issues for terminals. But remember now we're talking about domestic shirits, so it's not industrial shirits specifically. Mm. I can imagine what the impact and effect that this kind of research will have on the amount of water we can yield and clean cost-effectively. But what kind of impact will this make as far as water treatment is concerned? Well, if we compare, if you take uh, this plant so far, we have established that we can treat treat around uh, 5 megalitres a day very easily in the rural areas. You can use it as a hybrid system, so you can have your conventional treatment plant like any others in South Africa in the cities. They've got maturation plants after the conventional treatment plant, and that you can use to uh, optimize the water quality before you release it in the system. So it can be used only for rural areas, plant systems, or as a hybrid system. And it's got an enormous impact if you think in Africa, the millennium goals that we didn't make for wastewater and sanitation. There's lots of countries like the Faso that only got pond systems uh, where this algae can play a major role to treat uh, their systems itself uh, in, in uh, cooperation with uh, uh, other countries where you've got a conventional treatment plant that you can include it in the, uh, in the secondary treatment where you've got pond systems. And then you must also take in account if you if you put up a normal plant, it's around 210 million. If you put up this plant, you're talking about 300,000. Yeah. So it's a total different world compared. It's really robust and it's just made for rural areas specifically. Now, Prof, it would be interesting to know how effective the algae-based pathogen removal solution in comparison to the systems that we currently have how effective it actually is. Essentially, I just want to find out which step it is in the ordinary process is the algae-based system skipping. Okay, what we what we basically see is uh, your normal conventional treatment plants use chemicals and stuff to treat the water and stuff. Here we use a natural system. The natural system lifts the pH due to photosynthesis. Uh, so it lifts it to a pH around 9. And when the pH reach 9 of the water, uh, it starts killing your pathogens and viruses, as well as your coli that can make people sick. 
Now also what we've seen is removing of phosphates because this system is specifically built for phosphates. Mm. We see in South Africa that most of our rivers is phosphate sensitive and everybody knows that lots of our diamonds is eutrophic and that means eutrophication means enrichment of nutrients, you get toxic cyanobacterial blue-green algae in the dams. So all our rivers is basically nutrient sensitive. So to remove that phosphate out of the system, that is what this technology is uh, based for and planned for. So at the end of the day, at Motatema, we remove around uh, 80 to 90 percent of the nutrients out of the system, around 50 percent of the nitrates out of the system, and we reduce, uh, for example, if we look at the E. coli, we bring it down from uh, 19 million E. coli organisms to only 13 in the system itself. It's not there specifically to, if you've got the effluent, that you can drink the effluent, but it is definitely in the Department of Water Affairs standards to be released in the river and not impacted the ecosystem downstream of these wastewater treatment plants. All right. And in terms of wastewater, which which kind of wastewater are we actually talking about? Would it be the kind of wastewater coming directly from our households or or what exactly? Okay. Uh, it's definitely what we tested it so far on is domestic wastewater. That is what coming from your household. It's not industrial wastewater. Uh, we did uh, some tests uh, in a separate uh, uh, study that we have developed to use microalgae uh, to uh, remove sulfates from acid mine drainage, for example, and then use the biomass uh, to again to, to look at the biofuel for that specifically. But in the case that you're talking, is only domestic uh, water that we use this algae specifically for. But uh, previous studies show that the specific algae can also be used for acid mine drainage treatment, but they haven't tested it. Because what makes the uh, algae difficult is the fact that you need to harvest it. And in rural areas, there's not always electricity. So it's very easy if you've got electricity to harvest it. Uh, by flotation or so, but if you don't have any of these uh, methods and you don't have electricity, you need to look at other options. And there we ended up with aquaculture, working with the uh, University of uh, Lampalpa, and we were looking at specifically at tilapia fish, but at the end, will people buy tilapia fish if they grow up in Shiriz water? I don't think so. So we ended up looking also at koi fish as on ornamental fish to uh, use that and then uh, grew them up as fingerlings and then sell them. Mm. And from there developed in a business for entrepreneurs. So, so uh, it's a win-win situation for the wastewater being treated and you create jobs. Sure. And Prof, the system that you spoke about earlier on, does it indicate the direction in which water purification and conservation is heading in, advent of climate change and prospects of water security? Yes, definitely. I think uh, that's what we specifically look at. Uh, we look at how robust the system is under different climate conditions. The African Developing Bank specifically, uh, the JEF program that is climate change driven, that asked us to look at the feasibility of the system in uh, Namibia, for example, that's a very dry 
desert country. Then we also look at Mauritius as more uh, island climate conditions. And then we look at Malawi, Mozambique, Botswana specifically, countries that uh, we can play a role for climate change. But it's also very important uh, because we didn't make the Millennium Goals. Uh, how are we going to treat uh, the wastewater and sanitation situation in the rest of Africa, Sub-Sahara? This is a cheap uh, method that can be used by these countries. Uh, our algae shows that it can survive under these conditions. And uh, for the next step is to look uh, at 2030, the new uh, goals that we set out in targets if we can't use this technology to improve the sanitation in sub-Sahara countries of Africa. Hmm. So, Prof, what I have obtained as well is that the process involves a combination of six ponds to do all of this work. But how practical will this process be and what further cleaning would be needed to further purify the water? Well, basically, if we look at uh, you need the pond system because you you need retention time Mm -hmm. so that the algae can absorb uh, all the nutrients out of the system. So when water comes into the system, it takes 29 days to treat the whole system before it goes out to the effluent. And it treats the water up to special uh, guideline target levels of the Department of Water Affairs. So when it's been released, you don't need to treat it further. It is within the guidelines that's allowable for uh, effluent of domestic wastewater into the system itself. We removed then, the algae has been removed out of the system by uh, drying in the case of uh, mussel by treatment plant or by aquaculture in the case of uh, water timber. Uh, we also did look at what is the effect because most of these ponds is not lying on the ground. So uh, we looked at what is the effect of the nutrients in the system on, on the groundwater. The wall has been uh, drilled for that specifically, and we can see where we have done the algae treatment that we improved the groundwater as well in the area itself. And um, I understand that the greatest challenge was isolating algae that is able to extract most phosphates from the water. Talk to us about that and what is the biological and chemical processes that are involved there? We have uh, uh, collected algae around Africa, especially southern countries, mm-hmm. uh, natural algae that we have been tested under uh, lab conditions. Uh, we have collected water from different uh, wastewater treatment plants of which, uh, which uh, water timber was one. And we tested the algae. The most important thing is if you start looking at the consortium of algae, you need to look at algae that are not competing against each other. So what we see with this consortium of algae is that when it's been released in nature, it outcompetes other natural algae in the system. So it becomes a monoculture. That means it's only one type of species that's occurred there. And it even outcompetes blue-green algae or cyanobacteria that's toxic, and that was the whole idea because they flourish in water with high nutrients, and they're toxic if you release them in a river. So when you get to the stage where you get now your algae, you got your consortium, and they're not competing against each other, you release them in the water, they outcompete the existing algae in the system, and 
over time, uh, maybe two or three months, they becoming the, the major or main algae in the system, and you don't have to treat the whole system uh, on a monthly basis because this uh, algae is then uh, outcompeting all the algae and it stays in the system, in the ecosystem. Uh, it did take us, uh, I mean, most of the money invested in, in the, the whole project was to develop and look at the consortium of algae that we used. Uh, Chemical-wise, we did look if they can survive in uh, water with uh, high concentrations of metal, for example, mm-hmm. uh, different metals that occur in uh, uh, ice water, for example, aluminium is one of them. Uh, to see if they can survive those conditions, and then I think that was most important, as you previously mentioned, climate change. Could this algae survive at different temperature ranges. Can you use them, for example, in Namibia, with very high daily temperatures? Would they survive next to the coastal areas where the temperature is totally different from what we see mm-hmm. in Namibia? Okay. I'd like to assume, Professor, that time would be one of the constraints that are involved in the process of testing and all of that. But if we look at finances, how financially viable and sustainable is this project? The project, uh, the this whole system is very sustainable. The main thing is you just need, you don't need the operator with even the trick. You can have one with standard six, for example, or grade eight nowadays. So this person doesn't have to have the high schools that the engineer has. Problems that we had during the time uh, when employing the system is the fact that we had uh, bioreactors that is... Uh, connected to plastic piping and uh, we released the algae into the different ponds. Now there was previously a felt fire and we did have damage with these piping for example or with the bioreactors itself. Okay. Uh, other things that happen we do have at the pond systems especially in the rural areas if they are during peak times if they overflow you get some of these maturation ponds that uh, the walls collapse and when that happens, you need to switch from one six-pond system to another one, and then you need to refill that other pond, and that can take up to three or four months before you start to get treatment again in the system itself. All right. So you do have your challenges. It's just like a conventional treatment plant. If something broke in the conventional treatment plant uh, uh, of the machinery there, then you need to wait and get a new machine or new equipment in there that can take also months if it needs to come from overseas. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time, Professor. It was a pleasure talking to you about uh, something that I'm really passionate about. Thank you. It was very informative. That was the head of department of the Center for Environmental Management within the Faculty of Natural and Agricultural Sciences from the University of Free State, Professor Paul Oberholster, talking to us about a project underway in Limpopo that is utilizing algae-based wastewater treatment solutions to clean the water in that district. Stay listening. We return after the break. Stay curious, stay informed, stay on the science inside. 
So in tonight's first story, we tackled the issue of wastewater treatment and management with Kutadzo Muzanani, a lead researcher in the project with the CSIR. She spoke about her research, which focuses on an anaerobic digestion beneficiation project, which in turn will not only help with waste, but also capitalize on the possible energy that can be generated by the biogases in biological waste. And on Unscience, we heard of poor diet choices made by sleep-deprived individuals. And lastly, we ended the show with an interview with limnology professor Paul Oberholster on their team's innovative and collaborative algae-based wastewater treatment system that could possibly save multiple municipalities thousands of rands. Well, that was it on tonight's show. Our team behind the scenes is production by Bridget Lipere, myself and Linda Gutletimakwe, not forgetting our technical producer, Gudrano Serame. You can access our podcast on wits.journalism.co.za slash science. The Science Inside is produced by the Wits Radio Academy, funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. From myself, Linda Gutletimakwe. And me, Nodumiso Lehutso. Have, Have a good, good night. night. This is the Science Inside. The Science Inside Podcast.